0: Well, good morning. Uh, My name is Jacob Smith, and I'm the teaching pastor here at our Southwood campus, and I'm excited to be with you this morning as we are continuing in a year-long series of studying the book of Romans. Uh, If you were with us or here with us last week, uh, you know that we have begun to read through this letter that was inspired by the Holy Spirit, written by the Apostle Paul, and sent to a church of early believers in Romans. Rome. And this letter was written to them with really a clear intention. The, the, the main idea, the big kind of repeated refrain and theme that we're going to see week in and week out as we go verse by verse, passage by passage, week by week through this letter, is we're going to see that Paul wants to make sure that those believers understood the full extent of how the gospel is such good news that the good news of Jesus Christ can redeem, can redirect, can, can absolutely transform the life of any person who believes in the name of Jesus Christ. That's what we're going to see week after week. Is that the gospel is this incredibly good news. And this morning in particular, what we're going to see is that the gospel is such good news because we are in fact in a really bad place, that humanity, that the world itself is broken by sin. And so in order to really bring about this this full case for the good news of the gospel, Paul's going to spend the time that we have today and then for a few weeks, like Paul's going to spend a lot of time in the first three chapters of Romans talking about the broken state of our world and the broken state of humanity. And every single one of us, we can acknowledge, we can see like, yeah, there's there's brokenness here. But just like the church in Rome, we have the opportunity to believe in the name of Jesus Christ, to experience the transformation that comes by the renewing of our spirit through the work of God. And then we have the opportunity to share that good news with all of the world, right? That's why Rome was so important in Paul's day is because they were preparing and and building people up to send them out, and we are in the exact same spot here in Bryan College Station. We have the opportunity to gather, to grow, and then to go, and to bring this good news, this message of redemption, the salvation that's only available by grace, through faith, in Jesus Christ, with all people. And this is so significant because in and of ourselves, again, we are broken. That's what we're going to see Paul lay out, that we are broken. That even, not just the things that we do, not just the things that we think, but even the things that we desire are broken by sin. That our desires so often, in fact, bring about our own personal destruction that we might think I want to date that person. I want to be in that major. I want to do this thing in my workplace. I want to, you know, accomplish these things in my family. And yet the desires of our hearts so often lead us towards our own destruction. We see it in our life and we see it in the life of this young child whose parents decided to share her experience with all the world on the internet. Want to try wasabi? No. Do you want to try it? No. Okay. Wasabi. Do you want to try it? Smell it. Smell it first. Help. We've all been there. We've all been there. We've all had our wasabi moment where we think, again, like, gosh, I, I really want to go down this path. I really want to make this, I'm going to say this thing to that person in this way, and we will get that thing that we want. We'll, we'll buy that thing we were saving up for. We'll, we'll bring about that plan that we've been, or that, that project we've been planning for so long, and then even as we attain that which we think we need, we hit that moment of, oh, We all get there. Why? Because our desires are broken, that our desires are often self-destructive. And so the good news is that the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, it comes in and it transforms, it redeems the way that we think, the way that we feel, and the way that we live. And suddenly the gospel can deliver us from these self-destructive tendencies, but only if we are willing to trust in God, that he is God that we are not. Right? But when we, when we accept, when we acknowledge that we are broken by sin, that we need a savior in Jesus Christ, that is when the Lord can perform a mighty work. And what Paul's gonna lay out is essentially the need that we have for this mighty work in the way that we think, in the way that we feel, and in the way that we live. Or in other words, he says, this is going to transform or redeem Our wisdom, it transforms our worship and it transforms our work. It affects our head, it affects our heart, and it affects our hands. But I'm just telling you, right here, right on the front end, it's not pretty. It's not pretty. So if you read with me in Romans chapter one, we're gonna be in verses 18 through 32. If you wanna go there in your Bible. Uh, Turn there in your Bible or go there on your phone. We'll also have the verses on the screen. But Romans chapter 1, starting in verse 18, Paul kind of opens with a bang. He opens with a pretty harsh statement in that he says that the wrath of God is revealed. The wrath of God is revealed. If you were here last week, you might know that in Romans 1:16 and 17, Paul has this kind of culminating statement in the introduction of his letter, this really amazing news that he says that the righteousness of God is now revealed. It says the righteousness, the rightness of God is revealed in our gospel from faith to faith. In other words, Paul just said in verse 17 that God's power to make us right It is now revealed through Jesus Christ that we can trust in his name, trust in his power, in his life, in his death, in his resurrection, and then we might be made right by God. Not because I did enough, not because I said enough, not because I earned it, but because God, being rich in mercy, sent Jesus to pay the price for my sin. He says the righteousness of God is revealed In this good news of the gospel, but at the same time, right, the very next verse, he says, but recognize that just as the righteousness of God has now been revealed, he says the wrath of God is revealed. Literally, the reason we translate it like this in the English is the Greek term is this idea of a continual action. In other words, he's saying that the wrath of God is being continually revealed, we see his wrath. How? Well, it's from heaven and it's against all, all ungodliness, all unrighteousness. All this unrighteousness of people who suppress the truth by their unrighteousness. He says the wrath of God is coming now from heaven against the people who have abandoned the Lord, who have abandoned his, uh, his direction in how to live. These people who have suppressed. The truth. Paul's about to explain that every single person is given this this general revelation, this general understanding of the Lord. And yet there are those who take that revelation, that take that truth from the Lord, and they reject it. It's not that they miss it. It doesn't fly over their head. But instead, they catch it. And then they literally, the Greek term here for suppress means that they hold it down. They constrain it. They stuff it. They catch the truth and they say, nope, I don't want that. Paul says this is evident in their unrighteousness in the way that they live. He says, because, verse 19, what can be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, his divine nature, they have been clearly seen. And Paul's using a play on words. He says those unseen attributes are actually seen. How? Says it's in creation. God has chosen to reveal himself through creation, and he has r- revealed these otherwise unseen attributes, namely his power and his divinity. Right? The, that every person on the earth they can understand in some on some level, we have been shown this truth, that there is one who is powerful. And that this one who is almighty, who is all-powerful, is this eternal power, is in fact divine. Literally just meaning other than me, right? Not human, not earthly, but instead something other. He says we can see the power and the divinity, the otherness of God in creation because this is what God has intended creation to do. And he says, and because, if you read, read on verse 20, he says, because... They are understood through what has been made. So, people are without excuse. Paul is opening this passage with a very clear message. He says that the problem with humanity, the problem with this world, the brokenness that exists, it's not because of ignorance, it's because of rebellion. So, that's it. We can't make excuses. We can't, we can't say like, well, I just, you know, I didn't know better, or they you make excuses for other people, they, they just don't get like they just don't know any better. Paul's saying, no, God has designed all of creation to point towards these attributes of himself, and those who suppress that truth have no excuse. It's not ignorance, it's rebellion. And then he goes on, he says, although that they knew God, verse 21 Although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God or give him thanks. But instead, they became futile in their thoughts and their senseless hearts were darkened. It says this rejection of God's revelation, what it does is it leads us to the wrong way of living. It says there's no longer a, a desire or people are choosing to not glorify the Lord. In other words, to, to ascribe to him the worth that he deserves. It says they also are refusing to give thanks to the one who deserves it. But instead, as we've emptied our minds, as we've pushed out God from the equation, we become, they became futile, in other words, purposeless, literally the term here is purposeless in their thoughts, and their senseless hearts were darkened. The darkening of their heart brought about a moral, basically aimlessness. So he says the problem with humanity, the problem with our world, it's not ignorance. It's rebellion. And this rebellion manifests in that we are denying God what he deserves, namely glory and gratitude. And although, verse 22, although they claimed to be wise, they became fools. And they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for an image resembling mortal human beings or birds or four-footed animals or reptiles. This is tragic. Paul says that even in this rebellion, people will claim, "No, oh, I'm, I'm going to like create this new way of living. I don't need God, right? I, this is the lie that that the creature, that the creation doesn't need the creator." He says this lie that they've bought into. They are now claiming that their way is best. That this is the wise way. This is the smart way to go. He says, but this attempt at wisdom is actually just foolishness. And he illustrates it by saying they're taking, they're exchanging. This is the worst deal in history. He says they're exchanging the glory of the immortal, divine, all-powerful God for an image that represents a human, right? A bird, a four-footed animal, a reptile. Paul's saying this is clearly, obviously, a foolish way to live. This is obviously missing the wisdom of God. Godless wisdom is Foolishness. This is what Paul is illustrating right here at the beginning of this this passage. That our attempts at wisdom are in fact just foolish. I love that his example, even in his examples of the carven images of these idols, he starts with what? He starts with the image of a person. Right? We can drive around town. We don't see a lot of you know these magnificent idols devoted to four-footed animals or reptiles. I mean, if you drive by campus, there's a giant ring right there, and you're like, well, I don't know what that is, right? But there's, generally speaking, not a widespread adherence to worship of creatures. And yet, in our culture, in our world right now, in our own hearts and minds, there is a part of us that wants to elevate what? His first example. We wanna elevate people, probably ourselves, as soon as we knock God off the rightful place of ultimate, as soon as we knock him off that, the first thing to step up on that pedestal, I'm telling you, every time, it's us. We wanna be God. And this is demonstrated in the way that we think, in the way that we speak, in the way that we act, the laws that we pass, the organizations that we join, the the causes that we champion. It's an elevation of people over our God, and it's foolish. Paul says it's foolish. I'll tell you, I was a history major at Texas A and M because I knew I was going into ministry, so I was like, whatever, right? So I just I went to history, and so as a history major, I needed a minor, and I was like, hey, I really am interested in philosophy, right? I was like, this would be really fun. I loved history and stories, and I loved the the human angle of philosophy, so I took philosophy as a minor, and I took 30-something hours of philosophy courses at A&M. And I'll tell you that through that experience, my main takeaway from learning about ancient and, and modern philosophy is that I was so impressed at the ways that people would get creative in trying to avoid the idea of God. That's really what I saw in philosophy, was that we are so good, that people are so creative, and coming up with these wild ways of thinking, these wild explanations for why the world exists, for why we are who we are, for why things work in certain ways. We are so creative in our attempt to circumnavigate the real revealed truth that God has eternal power and divine attributes, They're a divine nature. This is something that we're really good at. One of my favorite, one of my favorite philosophies that I remember learning about that's existed for thousands of years is solipsism. And solipsism is this philosophical belief, again, it's it's thousands of years old, it says that I am the only conscious being in all of creation, that all of creation actually depends upon my consciousness. In other words, I'm real, you're not. Like, you're just figments of my imagination. Prove me wrong, right? that's 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 the stance, And it's literally impossible to argue against, I would say, because it's so wildly unreasonable. But this is a thing that people really have adhered to for thousands of years, solipsism. They say, you know what? When I go to sleep, everything else just, it's gone. It's gone. If I close my eyes, like, oh, bye. Welcome back, right? That's what... That's what solipsism teaches. And this is something that people really do. I I mean, I see it. I feel like this is a big one with babies. Like, that's what babies are all about, right? They don't know it, but they're like, I'm the only thing that exists. Like, that's what we see in even just young infants. And so we have these reasonings and these philosophies that attempt to circumnavigate the existence of God. And I'll tell you that as I sat in those courses, as I heard those lectures, as I studied those lessons, like, this is foolish. This is this is wackadoo wild. But it's what we have to do in order to make sense of things without God. If we reject that truth, it leads us down wild, wild paths. And it's tragic. It's it's so it's so terrible and unfulfilling and unsatisfying for those who hold to those beliefs. G.K. Chesterton had a great quote he's speaking about The problem faced by an atheist, right? A philosophy that says there is no God. He says the worst moment for an atheist is when he's really thankful and has no one to thank. Here he's speaking specifically about seeing like a beautiful sunset or looking out across the ocean. He says you are trapped in this false philosophy that does not fulfill, it does not satisfy, it doesn't actually answer the deepest questions and longings of your heart and your soul. And yet, we get there because our minds are broken, because our hearts are darkened, right? This is what Paul says. He says that the darkness in our hearts manifests and it distorts our minds. This is why so many highly intelligent people completely reject the message of Jesus Christ. That's why Paul would say in other letters that the the wisdom of God appears as foolishness to the unbelieving world because our minds are destroyed and distorted by the darkness in our hearts. That's why you can't just argue someone into faith you can't just create this like, logical, empirical line of evidence that leads someone to believing in Jesus Christ for the, forgiveness, for the forgiveness of their sins. It does not work like that. It requires a transformation of the heart, a heart that only the Lord himself can change, a heart that must be convicted by the Holy Spirit in order to, be, to, in order to find that faith in Jesus Christ. This is the reality of our brokenness. It's not something we can fix. It's not something that we can logic away. It's not something that we can argue away but instead we are living in this darkness that distorts our thinking. Paul says, this is where we are without the good news of Jesus Christ. We're entrenched in foolishness, dressed up to appear wise. And it means that we just, we behave in ways that are illogical. I see this in my home right now. There is just, my wife and I, we've got three little kids, ages eight, six, and four. And we have this, this theme right now in our home where our kids might be doing something they're not supposed to do, right? I say, hey, I need you to go you know, put your shoes in the shoebox. Like, that's, okay, go put your shoes in the shoebox or stop punching your brother in the face, right? Like, just very simple commands. And when they aren't doing this, and I call them out on this, or my wife calls them out on it, and we're like, hey, remember, your shoes don't go in the middle of the living room. They need to go in the shoebox, for whatever reason, right now we're in a season where they so often will just basically explain the thing back to us. So I say, hey, you need to go put your shoes in the box like I told you. And they'll say, no, 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 I, I just put my shoes here in the living room. And I say, I know, I know that, right? They think that the problem here is my ignorance. I know that the problem is the rebellion. <laughs> and we have to change that. Like, yes, I I know what you're doing. I, I don't want you to do that, though, right? But their minds are broken. And we are all like this. I do this. There there is so many ways, there are so many things that I know to be true, and yet because of the darkness in my heart, I resist it. I know that God wants me to live this way to reject this path, to, to repent of this sin, to, to move, you know, engage in a loving manner with these people that are hard to love. And yet there's a part of me that says like, no, 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 but like I, I don't need to do that because like I don't need to be selfless right now because I was so selfless yesterday, right? Or of course I can be prideful in this moment because look at all the things I did. And we try to justify unrighteous living because our minds are broken. So what do we do as followers of Christ? We should be a people who seek true wisdom in God's revelation. God has given us His word. He's given us this world. He's given us community with other people to find the wisdom that he is so readily and abundantly providing for those who simply Ask for those who simply seek. This is why we talk so much here at Southwood about being in the word of God on your own, to spend time in the word of the Lord, to spend time in prayer, listening for his wisdom, and not even just seeking wisdom isolated from one another, but seeking wisdom of God in community is so crucial. Just as God speaks through his word and through prayer, he speaks through other people, brothers and sisters in Christ, and so we need to be seeking God's wisdom with one another. Otherwise we fall into this foolish trap of trying to live out our own wisdom and it does not work. It does not fulfill. It does not succeed when we are counting upon our own strength and our own wisdom and rather than the Lord's who wants to lead us in the path of righteousness, who wants to lead us towards life, life abundant. Paul says we have rejected the Lord's wisdom but the gospel can bring us back. In the same way, we have chosen through our decisions to worship incorrectly. Our worship, the desires of our heart, the the, the thoughts and the, the passions of our souls, these desires, these passions are in fact broken by sin. Our worship is wrong. He starts explaining this in verse 24. Right, so he says we've we've created these idols, these images, and therefore God gave them over in their desires of their hearts to impurity and to dishonor their bodies among themselves. Literally, the term here for giving over, it's the same term. We have what is called the Septuagint. It's the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Even though the Old Testament was written in Hebrew. The, the ancient scholars, they would use a Greek translation of it. We call it the Septuagint. And in that Septuagint, which is often what Paul quotes when he uses, when he cites Old Testament verses in his letters, this is the exact same term. This giving over is the same term we see throughout the Old Testament when God is describing, essentially giving, handing over an enemy of Israel to be defeated. He would say, I'm gonna hand over, I'm gonna give over to you the Assyrians. I'm gonna give over to you the Egyptians. In other words, God was was releasing them for destruction. And God didn't just use it to describe Israel's victory over their enemies. God, in fact, would other times use it to describe what he was doing to Israel because of their disobedience. He said, because you've lost sight of me, because you've worshiped false idols, I'm now going to give you over to the Babylonians. I'm going to give you over to the Amalekites. You're going to face destruction as a consequence for your sin. Here, Paul is saying that God has now given these idol worshipers, these foolish people, he's given them over to what? Not to an enemy, not to another army, not to an invading nation, but giving them over to themselves. I'm gonna give you over, I'm gonna release you to the desire of your very own heart that leads to impurity, that leads to a dishonoring of your body says, this is what God has done. He has released them to destruction. And therefore, verse 25, they then exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And they worshiped and served the creation rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Paul says, they have now chosen to accept, reject the truth and accept the lie that creation can flourish and thrive without the creator that the creature can thrive without the creator. He says, this is the lie. This is the lie that we're tempted to believe. It's the lie that led Adam and Eve to sin in the garden, that they should make the right decision, that they know what's best, that God must be holding out on them. So rather than be grateful, rather than giving him glory, they chose to walk their own path. Paul says it's the same thing day in, day out, even in today's world, that we are worshiping and serving the creation rather than the creator. He says, but God is the one who is in fact worthy of that worship. He's the one that's worthy of that service. He's the one who's blessed forever, amen. That's why he says amen. He says, because this is wrong and God is the one who is in fact blessed. So then he gives an illustration. He provides an example of this rejection of God's created order. He says, it's for this reason that God gave them over, same term again, he uses it three times, he gave them over to dishonorable passions for their women exchanged the natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. He says, and likewise, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed in their passions for one another. And men committed shameless acts with men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. Okay, so Paul is illustrating the point that he's already made. And in fact, he's gonna continue to illustrate it. He's gonna give us 24 more examples of ways that we've rejected God's design and God's created order. But this is where he starts. He speaks to these shameless acts. He speaks to this decision to act on a wrong desire. I'll tell you that it's so interesting. Week in, week out, as I'm preaching, as I'm delivering you know, the messages, I've been studying, preparing to present. I mean, there's, there's a part of me that, I've done this for 15 years, and so there's a part of me that just, I can kind of gauge sort of temperature. I kind of know, like, where are we at? Like, do I need to speed up this thing? Do I need to shorten up that thing? Like, where, where are we at? And I'll tell you, it happened in the nine. It just happened again right now that even as I read these last couple verses, everyone's just sort of, where are we going? It's a little tense. And it's because the truth of God doesn't hold back. It's because we are meant to live in grace. Grace and also in truth. So we're not going to spend a ton of time on these two verses. We've got a lot of else a lot of other things we need to cover. But I do want to say that in this moment I want to be really clear. I want to be really compassionate. Cuz that's who Jesus is, right? The one who came 2 weeks ago we read it in John 1, he came in grace. And in truth, the fullness of grace, the fullness of truth, we need to be clear, we need to be compassionate. But I'll tell you, when I read this passage in Romans 1, what I find is the clear direction from the Lord that when we take sex outside of his intended use, it brings destruction, it brings despair. God created sex as a beautiful gift that he enacted in Genesis 2 first man, first woman, he brings them together. He says, this is an aspect now of your relationship that you become one spiritually, emotionally, and physically. And so he gave to them sex to be enjoyed in this beautiful union where the man created in the image of God and the woman created in the image of God come together to form a new oneness. He says, this is where sex belongs, in this covenant relationship between the man and the woman, the husband and the wife. This is where sex belongs. And any time we take sex out of that context, I'm just telling you, I've seen it in years of ministry. Anytime we remove sex and we try to put it in another context, another form of relationship, another whatever it is, when we move it outside of those healthy boundaries that God has created, it brings despair and destruction. And Paul's going to speak about adultery in general in Romans chapter 2. But here he's starting with another form of adultery. He says, these are people who have taken what God intended. He is, they have taken sexuality as God intended it to function, and they have put it in a new place. And he says, this is not right. And now note, he's speaking about the decision to act. He's not speaking about the temptation, the desire. Right? He's gonna list, as I said, 24 other things, and we're all tempted at times to be prideful, to be slanderers, to, be, you know, to give in to all these different vices he's about to list out. He says, but it's the decision to act on that desire. That's what brings penalty. That's where the error lies. And some people, in, especially in recent years, have tried to approach Romans 1 and they try to make the argument, they say, well, Paul's describing a homosexual practice that was very different from what we understand it to be today. They'll try to make the they'll they'll make the argument. They say he's he's describing um, this you know this this horrific like abuse that would happen in uh, you know certain sectors of the Roman Empire. And he's describing these 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 false worship you know these in these other temples, these Roman god temples. They they had these worship uh, proceed or ceremonies involved. This like really twisting of sexuality. And yeah, Paul is definitely. Opposed to those practices, but I would argue in the vast majority of biblical scholarship, we say, no, we are unconvinced that Paul is only talking about this weird little subsect that, that Paul doesn't even understand. This is the argument sometimes that Paul doesn't even have a concept for monogamous, loving, loving homosexual relationship, what we would call gay marriage. Paul didn't have a concept for that. And the reality is that vast, vast majority of biblical and historical scholars completely reject that notion, saying that no, Paul knew exactly all these different outworkings of homosexual behavior. He knew it. There is nothing that we have today in sexual expression or gender identity, there is nothing that exists today that didn't exist thousands of years ago in the Roman Empire. They probably had more. All of the things that we think are, oh, this is a really novel, crazy new idea, it's not, it's really not. There's nothing new under the sun. And the perversion of sexual activity in the Roman Empire would, would make some of us blush. And that think that's even why, and again, where scholars say, you know, it seems to be that Paul's being very intentional even in that he, is, he describes the women because that was where there was more often than not in the Roman Empire, that's where there actually were long-term, monogamous, homosexual relationships between women. And Paul says, they're in the wrong. These men are in the wrong. He says, it's all a perversion of God's intended order. It's all a shameless act, and it will all bring about the due penalty for its error. Now, we are gonna have a lot more time that we're gonna actually talk about the biblical understanding the biblical position on gender and sexuality. We're gonna do it in the spring. On the other side of Easter, we're gonna have four or five weeks where we are speaking to really this this really major, current major topic. And not major in that it's, it's worthy of greater oppression, it's worthy of greater condemnation, but major in that it is, for whatever reason, one of those perversions of God's natural order that is seemingly, can constantly, currently trying to be justified when in fact there is no justification. Paul says this is where rejection of God's truth leads us. It leads us to these desires that are destructive, it leads us to this life, this worship that's worthless says, because these things that we chase after for satisfaction and pleasure and fulfillment, he says, they just don't cut it. They just don't get us to where we want to be. They don't make us who we want to be. Tim Keller has this great book called Counterfeit Gods talking about idolatry. He has this really cool just sort of framing, this definition of what an idol is. He says, what is an idol? It's anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you, what only God can give and the reality is that we all have idols in our lives. In fact, Paul's gonna give, as I said, these 24 different kind of vices that we can run down beyond even just homosexual behavior. And he's gonna actually talk not just about these vices, but there might be some, because there might be some that read them and they're like, yeah, those are, oh, that's really bad. Those people, oh yeah, they need to get it together. They need the gospel. Romans chapter two, Paul then goes, and you know what? If you felt really good about reading those last like 12 verses, it's like, you might be self-righteous, and boy, you in some trouble. Like, that's where he goes, in different words. But that's what he says in Romans 2. He says, none of us, none of us are free from sin. None of us are free from seeking after the things that only God can give from other broken people sources. We all are tempted. We all have a proclivity to to ascribe and give our worship to something that is in fact worthless. And what happens is as the more we worship this false idol, the more our desires become distorted and disturbed. And it's so tragic because these things simply don't last. Like the, 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 the accolades in your workplace, they, they don't last. Like the, the, the sports team that you're so proud of, like, my goodness, like the Aggies won last night. That's great. Yeah, whoop, a whoop, indeed. But I'll tell you what, I'll tell you what, I've been in college station long enough (laughs) that I can tell you I'm not too quick to put that idol up on my mantle. Because the day will come when we will fail again. Maybe not next week, maybe not this season, who knows? But it's coming. Everything fails. Everything fails. Even our most, you know, prized, the people. People fail us. Our prized possessions, they fail us. I I remember being told early on when I bought a house, I had an attic now, and I could put things in my attic. I'm like, this is great. We can store things in our attic. I don't remember who said it, but I remember at some point someone told me, that, and I think about it, every time I put something in my attic, I'm like, oh, we need to store this. We need to save this, right? This old, like, baby clothes or, like, this, you know, system, this old TV that, like, it still works. Anytime we put those things in our attic, what was told to me was that, you know what? When you do that, when you store those, those things, those prized possessions, really what you're doing is you're saying, I want my kids to throw this away. (laughs) That's really what it is. You know what? Future Johnny can worry about that. And he's gonna have a lot of fun trying to sell it on eBay and it's not gonna work. Our most prized possessions, that GPA that we spend all this time, GPAs, they matter, For a time, right? So don't hear me say they never matter. They do matter for a time. But eventually, ah, these things they fade. And so if we're ascribing to them all worth and all worship, then man, we've lost, we've missed the point. We've lost the cause. And so as followers of Jesus Christ, we should be a people who are committed to worshiping the God who's worthy. I love the fact, I was so struck that when Paul talked about people's rejection of the truth of God, that one of his two things, he says, one, they don't give him glory, but even more telling, what I was so struck by is, and also, they're not giving thanks and I think that was such an astute, what a what a meaningful moment in Romans that he would even say that the, the lack of worship is often seen in our lack of gratitude. So, simply put, as followers of Christ, we can be people who are worshiping the God or worshiping our God by our thanks, by giving our gratitude, by expressing our thanksgiving for what the Lord has provided. We should spend time every day. As one old pastor would put it, he says, it's his thankfulness should be uh, something that we're expressing when we're in the bed, in the bath, and on the bus. We might not use all those things anymore. Maybe we should. But the idea is that there are moments in our day where we can be continually, constantly giving thanks to the Lord, and in doing so, we have a life of worship recognizing that God is God, that we are not, that he is worthy of all the time and all the, all the attention, that that thing, that person, that position, it, it simply isn't. Briefly, what we'll see at the end here is Paul then talking about how the gospel can redeem not only our wisdom and our worship, but our work, the very, you know, the work of our hands. He says this in verse 28. He says, just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God, gave them over, there it is again, to a depraved mind to what to do what should not be done. And then he's gonna illustrate this depraved mind. Right? He says this, this, essentially this misdirected, this useless mind. He says it's been emptied out of the Lord because we've rejected his truth. And then we fill it, literally the term here for filled, it's filled full. We are now filled full with every single kind. Every single kind of unrighteousness, wickedness, covetedness, malice. They are rife with envy, murder, strife, deceit, hostility. They're gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, contrivers of all sorts of evil, disobedient to parents, senseless, covenant breakers, heartless and ruthless. And I highlight the disobedient to parents. Probably because I have young children, but also mainly because I love that Paul uses this one. In the midst of these other things, they're like, ooh, slander and you know, these, these all sorts of envy and evil and murder. Oh, it can be easy to be like, oh yeah, well, that's, uh, other people do with that. That's why I love that he's like, and you know what, disobedient to parents, boom. I and mean, that's everybody. We, when we leave today, we should all tell our mom and dad that we're just sorry for everything, right? It just happens. In other words, none of us are immune. None of us have reason to believe in ourselves that we are enough, that we've done enough. We're, we've all lost the way. We've all lost our, we've all missed the mark. And although they fully know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they do not only do them, but they also approve of those who practice them. He says, this is what's so tragic, is that even though people do what is wrong, sometimes, you know, for all of human history, people will do things that are wrong that they know are wrong, and they'll do it in secret. They'll do it in solitude. They're like, oh, this is gonna be my personal thing. No one's gonna know about it. He says, what's even worse is that people do what they know is wrong, and it's so shameless, it's so blatant that then they approve of it and they cheer it on and they affirm it when they see it in the life of someone else. And I don't even have to go down a list of examples for us to acknowledge that this is so prevalent even in our world, even in our society, even in our culture today. That we say, yeah, you know what? I know it's wrong, but I'm still gonna do it. And in fact, you should too. Paul says this is the destructive power of sin. This is why we need the gospel because godless work is always destructive. Those desires lead us down a path that we don't really want to walk. C.S. Lewis put it this way. He says that there are two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done and those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. He will give people over to the brokenness of their minds, of their hearts, of their hands, and he allows them to face the consequence to receive the just punishment of their error. This is where we all are, apart from Jesus Christ. And it's interesting that even as Paul gave that list of 24, these are things that not only destroy and divide the individual, but these are things that destroy and divide the community. So many of these things are relational. They don't just divide us from the Lord, but they divide us from one another, because reality is that personal sin never stays just personal. Personal sin never stays just personal. A few weeks ago, I had a little pipe in my attic, and it just had a personal little problem that it was leaking. Man, sorry, sorry, pipe, you got this little leak. But over time, that little individual problem became everyone's problem. And then the ceiling in one of our bathrooms collapsed. And some of you might be thinking, wait a second, I was here last week. Jacob, didn't you put this picture up? Didn't I already see this? Didn't I already hear this used in a slightly different way for another illustration? Why, yes. Yes, you did. <laughs> and I'll tell you why. Because it still works for this. Also, it was so expensive to repair that I legitimately had the thought, I said, you know what? For this to be cost-effective, I need two illustrations out of this, out of this <laughs> <laughs> experience. At minimum, don't be surprised if this comes up again. Because what seemed to be just a lone little isolated individual personal problem, it, in fact, became everyone's problem. What we think of as just personal sin, I'm just a little angry. I'm just like, I just get prideful about things. I don't say anything. These personal sins, I'm telling you, it always creates widespread division and destruction. divides us from the Lord and divides us from one another. Paul says, this is what sin does. It destroys everything. So we need the gospel. We need this new way not to work for our own desire, for our own broken depravity, but instead to work for the glory of God, for the good of others. We work for God's glory and our unity. We build up the church. We build up the body of Christ. We work with excellence as unto the Lord. We work with excellence for eternity. We work with excellence for eternity, recognizing that our lives are not our own, recognizing that there's so much more, recognizing that we are dependent not on our own strength and ability, but instead we are people who live because Christ died, right? This is where Paul's bringing us. This is what Paul followed. This is what he's going to say again in Romans chapter 3. Is that we need, because of this bad news, we need the good news of Jesus Christ, that while we were in the midst of our depravity, our rebellion, while we were enemies of God, Jesus Christ stepped out of heaven and onto earth to live the perfect life that none of us could live, to die the death that we all deserve because of our sin. And then he rose on the third day to prove his power and authority over sin, over death, over shame, over guilt, over those mistakes, over the darkening of our hearts, over the destruction of our minds, over the, the, just the distorted ways that we live and think and work. It says, Jesus Christ came that if we call on his name, we're free from those things. That now, if we are in Christ, there's no condemnation, right? We're gonna get there in Romans 5. There's no <laughs> condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because just as death entered through one man and his sin, so too life, eternal life has come through one man, through Jesus Christ, who lived perfectly, who died sacrificially and who's coming back again, victoriously. That's where our hope lies. That's the good news. It's not that we can do better. It's not that we can fix those mistakes. It's not that we can patch up that ceiling that collapsed. The good news is that Christ has done what we could never do.